I passed on to you as of first importance what I myself received. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in the tomb. He was raised on the third day. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to 500 more brothers and sisters at once. He appeared to James and all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, the least of all the apostles. And he called me the one totally unfit, completely wrong for the church because I had persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace for me has not been in vain. All that I've done, it's not me, but it's the grace of God that is with me. To St. Paul, this was of first importance. Not a list of required behavioral attributes for the people called church. Not a top ten list of the most important things to believe if you want to be in the club. Not a dress code of what you can or you can't wear to church. Not a political party's ideologies you must identify with. Not a vision of even how to make the world a better place. For Paul, the most important thing was a story. Not just a story, but the story. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus lived again, and he appeared to the disciples. There is a better than good chance that you are here because somewhere along the line you heard this story. More often than not, we discover our faith not because someone said, you need to believe in this, but because someone told us the story and we start to see ourselves in that story. And let me tell you, it's a crazy story. I mean, what in the world was Jesus thinking? He's done the most remarkable thing in the history of the cosmos, resurrected from the dead. And what does he do first? He goes to Peter. You know, the one that denied him three times before he died. Jesus surely would have been better off, I don't know, going somewhere a little more effective. If Jesus really wanted to spread the good news, he should have gone to the powers and the principalities, to the movers and the shakers, the ones who get things done. If Jesus really wanted to turn the world upside down, then why did he start with people like Peter and Paul? Our Lord, the one we love and adore, the solid rock upon which we stand, didn't knock on the doors of the emperor's palace with holes in his hands and said, Hey, I'm back. He didn't fly up to the top of the temple and wait for the crowds to bow down in humble reverence. The resurrected Jesus appears first and foremost to the very people who abandoned him. Just sit in that for a moment. Jesus breaks forth from the chains of death, shows up for his ragtag group of would-be followers, the ones who failed him, forsook him, and fled from him into the darkness. Jesus chose, in this most profound and powerful of moments, to return to his betrayers. Jesus returns to us. That's why the good news is something that has captivated the hearts and minds of many for centuries. Jesus sees more in us than we see in ourselves. Jesus does his work, his very best work, with people like us. People who don't deserve it at all. I mean, think about Peter and Paul for just a moment. Paul was a perjurer. Peter, sorry, Peter was a perjurer. Paul was a murderer, a denier of the faith, and a killer of the faith. And even before all that happened, Peter was, was nothing but a dirty, rotten fisherman. And he wasn't even very good at it. He's out all night and he doesn't even have one fish to show for it. Jesus sees him and says, hey, I see potential. You're fishing for the wrong kind of thing. 
No more fishing for fish. Now you're going to be fishing for people. And Paul, you know what Paul did before Jesus knocked him down? He was a tent maker. What are you going to do with a tent maker when you're trying to turn the world upside down? And yet, it would have been crazy news enough that this first century rabbi came back from the dead, but it's good news because he came back for them. He came back for us. In my experience, the church can be a lot of things. Depending on what church you enter, it can be a safe space for spiritual reflection with high vaulted ceilings and stained glass windows and incense. It can be a transformative assault on the senses with a technicolor light show and a fog machine and a bumping bass from a praise band. And yet, regardless of the way it looks or the way it sounds or even the way it feels, get rid of the trimmings and the trappings of church, church, they all usually fall into one of two categories. Church is either a good group of people who get together week after week to pat themselves on the back for how much gooder they are than everybody else. Or the church is a group of people who get together to cope with their failure to be good. Now, the first group sounds really nice, and it can even be nice, but only for a very short period of time. Because eventually, all the shiny proclamations about how good we are, they fade away when we admit that we're not as good as we think we are. One day, all those things that used to bring us comfort, they no longer ring true because we look in the mirror and we realize we're not much of anything. Basically, at some point, we discover that our goodness isn't good enough, that we need something, we need someone to do for us what we can't do on our own. But the second kind of church, it has its own problem. A group of bad people coming together to cope with their inability to be good, that doesn't sell. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if, if we went out here to our sign on the corner and it said, Raleigh Court United Methodist Church, we're bad and we know it. It would be true, but that doesn't wake people up on a Sunday morning, a cold February Sunday morning to come to church. That doesn't make us leave and go knock on our neighbors and say, come, come join us. Our pastor tells us how bad we are every week. And yet, the story of Jesus, the story that Christians have been telling for centuries, the very story that, that Paul told to the church in Corinth, it's that God comes to us not because we're good, but because we're not good. And when we start to see that, and not just in the strange new world of the Bible, but in our very lives, it is the difference that I tell you, it makes all of the difference in the world. For a long time in the church, there was an aspect of, of testimony, of, of witness. I mean, that's what Paul is doing in the letter. He shared with them how God had worked in his, I am unfit to be part of this enterprise, and yet God saw something in me. So for centuries, Christians have gotten together, and we've carved out time, and we've made space to share what God has done, about how the love of God has been revealed to us, how we begin to see that the God we worship refuses to abandon us. We share our story and how God is part of our story. We share a witness, a testimony. And because church wouldn't be fun if it was always comfortable, we're going to do that right now. But we're Methodists, and I recognize that this is very uncomfortable. Testimony, witness, that's what the Baptists do, not the Methodists. We sing. We don't offer testimony, but we are right now. I am a product of the church. 
growing up in the church, meeting people through the church, hearing the story over and over again. I am, like Paul says, I am what I am because of the grace of God within me. And I know that that's why we're all here. Because somehow, some way, God showed up in our life. Sometimes it's in small ways, sometimes it's in big ways. And so we're going to do an uncomfortable thing right now. And I have turned this microphone on up here at the front. And I'm going to invite anyone who has something they want to share to come forward. If you have a story about how you have felt God at work in your life, how you've experienced Jesus being the difference that makes all the difference in the world, if you can say that you've had a moment like Paul, where God was able to pull something out of you that you couldn't do on your own, I want to hear about it. I want to be clear. If no one comes up to this microphone, I have 50 stories I can tell. <laughs> but I'd rather hear from all of you than from me. So it's open. If you have something you'd like to share, come do so. I'll confess, I'm, um, I was asked ahead of time to be prepared to prime the pump, so to speak. So, and I decided I better go ahead because this is not my most comfortable thing. So I will claim that right now that Jesus is giving me courage to do this. But the love of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the hope of Jesus was demonstrated to me through my parents. So I want to share that a little bit of that with you. My dad at 92 still said his favorite hymn was Jesus Loves Me. And in fact, that was the last song that we sang with him over Zoom about 48 hours before he died. We sang that as a family at his funeral. And I think he would have really liked that. My mom, in the throes of dementia, she couldn't even recall our, her children's names, but there was one name she did remember, and that was Jesus. Thanksgiving of just a few years ago, she said the blessing before dinner. Most of it, we couldn't understand, but one thing we could. We heard Jesus, 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 over and over again was the most powerful prayer I have ever experienced. So I'm just here to say that Jesus is hope, Jesus is grace, Jesus is love. And in the season of loss that we are all in, whether it's been physical loss, emotional loss, loss of tradition, loss of normalcy, the only thing we can rely on is Jesus. And I don't even understand, I can't even comprehend how you can walk forward in life without that hope. Thank you. I, for a while I was Baptist and I had a pastor who insisted 
in a class I was in that I needed to give my testimony. So I'll give part of it. I grew up in the church. We went to Sunday school every week. Now my father did not, says later in life, he did not actually have faith till I had left home. But we still were in church every Sunday. And I leave that to others to decide what that says. But the point is, I had a Sunday school teacher who taught me a lot of things. He, but he taught me, most of all, if I believed in Jesus, I should try and follow him. I should try and serve him. What now, at the same time, my mind was so logical, and it is still logical, that I couldn't understand in many ways. In other words, logic does control many, me in many ways. And the idea that I could be good enough to follow Christ made no sense to me because that's a spectrum that basically is saying, if, I do, if I'm this good, there is one person who is one ounce, you know, one tiny bit better. There's another person who's a tiny bit worse. How is God going to say, this is where I'm going to chop it off? These guys make it, these guys don't. I went, now, I was called, we were then invited to a Bible study, and I encourage Bible study as much as possible. But the point is, we, it was taught by someone we didn't trust, we didn't in many ways like. We went, we stayed. It was the best of so many things I ever did in my life. And when, at one time, it was, it, as we were driving home, it suddenly, the light went on. I suddenly realized it wasn't a matter of, was I good enough? It was, do I accept it? Have I accepted what Jesus has offered? And from that point on, then I have lived with a joy in my heart that I cannot explain through any other way than the idea that this is from Christ, this is from God. So this is how I can know that I will be with him after I die. When we were looking at going to Turkey, there were a lot of decisions that we had to make, and it was not an easy time. One of them was our son David, our only child, had just started college. 
And that bothered us. That bothered us because he was just starting. And what was he going to do if we left? I had so much wisdom he needed to hear. <laughs> and I knew that would be a big gap in his life. But what, what would he do if we left? But Jesus said, follow me. No matter what, follow me. And I'll take care of the rest. I'll take care of the rest. Follow me. We looked at the money situation. It was going to involve an 80% cut in income. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounded significant to me. 80% was a lot. And Jesus said, follow me. I'll take care of the rest. Me first. So we went, not knowing what was going to happen. Right after we left, David was going to a church, a college. And he got to know the pastor. And the pastor said, come with us. Come be part of our family. Now, all of the family members, the kids, the parents, carried around these little a plastic card with everybody's in the family, all of their names, contact information, in case something happened. Had all of their names and my sons. My sons. He was part of the family. He was taken care of. And the pastor was very wise. And we went. And it was not cheap. We had a Ford Focus. I don't know if you know what a Ford Focus is, but it's a little car. It cost $100 to fill it up. $8 a gallon. Fortunately, with an 80% cut in salary. <laughs> but we made it. We made it. There was not a single need God did not take care of. From the simple things to the things closest to our heart. Jesus, first, he said, I'll take care of it. And he did. And he still does. Okay, what he said is true. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go back earlier. Um, when I was in high school, I felt called to missions, and I told God no, and no, and no, and no. And I got tired of fighting, so actually at the church I went 
I was also in a Baptist church, go forward, and I said, okay, um, I've been called to mission. So I announced it, but it was like, God, I'm not going to go. Um, and then I got to college and met some people who listened to me and a pastor, again, who cared about me and listened. And suddenly it was like, okay, I want to go. I'll go after my fighting and rebelling. And I was walking across campus one day, and it was like, God loves me. I want to go. God loves me. But God said, I felt like God said, you're going to love, you're going to share my love here in this country. It was like, well, okay. After I fought over it, and then I said, yes. <sighs> so then we got married, and Fred, many years later, said, how about us going overseas on a mission? And I told him, I get to go after all. So I got to go. We had a good time. And then some of the things didn't go so well. I was like, okay, God, why are you doing that? So Fred did say that Jesus takes care of us, but it wasn't always the way we wanted. I mean, there were hard times in Turkey. And there were times when I just wanted to tell God to forget it, and I wasn't even sure he was there. And so for those of you who doubt, my faith has gone like this. Fred's more this stable one on that one. So anyway, just wanted to share my side. that kid. One of the first times I asked a church to do this, there was a, a woman, before I even got a chance to sit down, she said, preacher, I have a story I need to share. I said, by all means, please come to the microphone. Tell, tell everybody what, what God has done for you. And she got, she said, preacher, this week, I needed to go to Walmart. And when I got to Walmart, it was packed. There were so many people at Walmart, there was not a single parking space in the parking lot. And you know what I did? I said, Lord, if you are the good God above, you will give me a parking space. And you know what happened, preacher? A car pulled right out, and I pulled right in. Thank you for letting me share my story. Amen. I said, um, indeed, God does work in mysterious ways, perhaps even in a parking lot. 
And then I prayed that God would ask somebody else to get up and share a testimony. And a woman named Pearl stood up. And Pearl was from Pakistan. She'd been worshiping at the church I served for a little while, but she hadn't really talked to many people. And she was there that, that morning with her children and her husband. And she got up and she said, my name's Pearl. I'm from Pakistan and I have a story I want to share. She grew up in a remote part of Pakistan where she and her community were Christians. And where she was in Pakistan, that was a very dangerous thing to be. And the older her children got, the more death threats they started to receive about their faith to the degree that they no longer thought they could stay in that community safely. And so they fled. They eventually made their way to the United Kingdom. And they had some friends there that they hid out with for a long time. But eventually they got caught by the powers and principalities and said to them, you're not allowed to be here. We're sending you back to Pakistan. And so here's Pearl with her two young children being forced onto an airplane with her husband and some authorities from the UK, and they're being sent back to Pakistan. And they had a layover, and I can't remember where she said the layover was, but she said they were in this airport, and she's absolutely terrified, just completely succumbing to fear. And she keeps pulling her children closer to her on her husband, and they keep holding hands, and they keep praying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And one of the workers from the UK heard her prayer and realized that she and her family were Christians and that they were sending them back to a place where you can't be a Christian. And so this worker gathered with the other workers and pulled them together in a circle, and they started to pray. So you have this one family here and these workers over here, and they're praying in this airport, and then the, the lead worker went over to Pearl and said, we understand the situation better than we did before. We're going to go back to the UK, and we're going to tell them that we dropped you off in Pakistan but we're going to let you go wherever you want. And they walked away. So Pearl and her family eventually made their way to the United States, eventually to Woodbridge, Virginia, and they started going to the church that I was the pastor of. Mick Jagger is right. You don't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you need. Sometimes it's a parking space, Sometimes it's deliverance from death. Sometimes it's God making good on a call many years later. But in Scripture, we talk about Yahweh, Yireh, Jehovah, Jireh. God provides. That is the witness of Scripture. It's not always what we want. And sometimes it is what we need, but we can't even see that it's what we need. But when we don't get what we need or what we want, that's why we have the church to be there for us to help pull us up when we can't pull ourselves up anymore. It's why we sing the songs we sing and we pray the prayers we pray. It's why we teach children these stories from the Bible because they really do make all the difference in the world because Jesus is the difference that makes the difference. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.